Hello, Five Things listener. Communication is everything, especially for marketers and PR professionals. But if communication is more than your job, if it's your passion, then you should check out the podcast Stories and Strategies. Stories and Strategies is about human communication. It explores the deeper issues impacting marketing and PR professionals, such as artificial intelligence capabilities, behavioral science, behavioral economics, nudge theory, and making communication content and materials more accessible. You'll get all of this and more when you check out Stories and Strategies, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Five Things. It's This Week in Social. Each week, we look left, look right, and be sure to check both ways for all the stories in social media that you need to know for the week ahead. Our friends are here, Kane Fair and Daniel Avon. Hi, Kane. How are you? How's it going, Joey? Question for you. What's the strangest or most memorable Halloween costume you had as a kid? Oh, as a kid? We did the entire um, Mighty Ducks squad. So we had like, you know, eight or 10 guys with Mighty Ducks jerseys on and rollerblades and did the whole flying bee thing down the street. I think that one might take the cake for me. <laughs> that is epic. That is so amazing. It's knuckle puck time. All right, Daniel, same question to you. Anything weird or were you a Ninja Turtles kid? It's like you read my mind. I was a Ninja Turtle and my mom made the costume. Points all around. Oh, that's amazing. And of course, the question, which Ninja Turtle were you? I wish I could tell you. It was a red mask, if that tells you anything. Raphael, very nice. I'm Joey Scarillo and I can't believe I'm about to admit this on a podcast, but in fourth grade, I dressed up as Albert Einstein and I will be taking no further questions. All right, here are the five things. First, Daniel kicks us off with Kim Kardashian facing SEC challenges. Then Kane gets into Twitter, who are coming up with some strange but fun updates. Next, Daniel digs into a pair of reports from Spotify and co-host revealing the undeniable power of podcasts. Then Kane talks TikTok, who are looking to a partnership to help them develop a flailing live shopping feature. And finally, Daniel mentions Meta, who apparently are trying to get into the weird AI trend sweeping social. And I have to admit, when I first read that, I thought it was Weird Al. So I'm so glad it's Weird AI. All right, friends, let's get into it. Daniel, break down everything going on with Kim K as she faces the SEC. So let's get into it. So firstly, I want to say this is not a gossip column, but I feel like the story makes it seem as such. And as a watcher of reality TV myself, please, no judgment, I hope, at least. So as of this week, Kim Kardashian of Keeping Up with the Kardashians fame, Skims, Skin, I think it's pronounced S-K-K-N, and other business ventures has been charged and agreed to pay $1.26 million to the SEC. Though all the articles I read said she's not pled guilty or accepted blame for an Instagram post that she made to her over 200 million followers at the time last June promoting the Emacs or Ethereum Max cryptocurrency. And this is all alleged in a biased way. So she's advocating for a given cryptocurrency to her followers. Kardashian is not alone in promoting crypto at large. We've seen the likes of Matt Damon and Larry David, among others, in crypto exchange commercials during the Super Bowl. I have a special place in my heart for a Megan Thee Stallion commercial that always seemed to show up during all the shows that I watch. 
featuring a crypto trading component of the Cash App app. This is a unique case, however. So those other celebrities that I mentioned are simply recommending platforms on which to trade. But Kardashian was promoting a specific currency. And as I understand it, it would be akin to promoting a single stock or a mutual fund or something like that. So the SEC, again, seems to be using her as sort of an example. I don't know if they're targeting her specifically or really wanting her to change behaviors. But it is interesting to kind of look at the dynamics of the post that she actually made because she's trying to cover her tracks. She had the ad hashtag. She had a specification in the post that she's not providing financial advice. And the post linked out to Ethereum Max's website where you can learn more about how to purchase tokens and so forth. She effectively got $250,000 for this post, a pretty uninspired post, text heavy, and it looks like it was just a story. So 250k to essentially just say, hey guys, here's this new thing for you, Ethereum Max, here's how to find out more about it, but I'm not recommending it as financial advice. The SEC's argument seems to be that not all investment products are right for all investors. And there also seems to be this underlying dynamic, I'll call it, of crypto and the financial industry at large being a highly regulated space and crypto being something that they want to continue to regulate more as it matures. So also in light of the particular tumble that the market has seen in the past few months. This is not the first time that a post from Kim Kardashian has garnered the attention of regulators. You may remember in 2015, she had a post for Diclegis, which is a morning sickness drug that she allegedly used and definitely promoted during her second pregnancy. The post was asked to be removed because in the post as well, Kardashian tried to cover her tracks. She had a lot of information. She linked to a separate page with more information about the drug. But the FDA had problems with the drug company itself and the safety information that they provided. This is interesting, though, because in the example of Diclegis, the drug company was kind of the ones to bear the brunt of the blame. Kardashian is facing all of the charges and the onus is put on her. A lot of the reporting around this has honestly been a little bit of an eye roll because it's essentially saying she's valued at $2 billion. This $1.26 million charge is not going to change her behavior. But it is a signal. It gives pause, I hope, to brands, particularly within the crypto space and in other heavily regulated environments to think of how and if to work with influencers. For example, other influencers, smaller influencers with shallower pockets may not be interested or willing to work with Ethereum Max particularly or other cryptocurrencies because they're afraid of receiving such a fine and they don't have the coffers to pull from to pay for it. As brands, it's kind of just further evidence in this Again, a little bit of an eye roll, but be really close to your legal departments. Ensure that there are multiple rounds of review, especially if you're in a potentially sensitive industry like finance or healthcare, pharma. And I know multiple rounds of review may delay processes, but they're super important and ensure that you're being a good partner and also that you're yourself as a company or brand trying to avoid to the best of your abilities charges. Promoting the legal department. Good job, Daniel. That's great. What's interesting, too, is that Kim K herself is actually in school studying law at this moment. So that makes this another wrinkle and interesting point in this story. I'm curious to two things, Kane. One is what steps do you think influencers can take to keep themselves safe from the SEC when entering anything in the crypto space? And then I guess a question for both of you is, do you think this will lead to more regulation of influencers? 
Kane, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I think it's super interesting. I work really closely with the with the health and wellness side of our our business at Gray, and within that is a very regulated industry, whether it be pharmaceuticals, organizations, foundations within the health and wellness space. And we use we use influencers quite often, whether they be for testimonials or patient ambassadors or doctors or what have you, just to help bring legitimacy and authenticity to the stories that we're telling. And sometimes they are individuals with big following and, you know, A-list celebrities. And sometimes they're just like we just talked about small patients that have seen great success on a therapy. But when you bring someone in to help promote a product, especially one that could be tapped into or have big eyes on by someone like the SEC, you have to be able to be incredibly sure that how you're setting it up, having them help promote is I's are dotted, T's are crossed. There's very clear approved processes by legal, medical, your regulatory teams, because the moment that you have someone like a Kim K or of the like start promoting your product and there's something that's missing, you're going to get eyes on it and you're going to make it become relevant and interesting to someone like the SEC. So yeah, as you build out influencer programs, I guess this is just agnostic of a product or a brand, make sure that what you're setting up is something that's legally approved and make sure that who you're contacting and who you're getting to promote your product to someone that also understands the implications and the and the reality of what could happen if something goes wrong or someone like the SEC comes in. Because if you don't think about those things, oftentimes those are the times that they come in and actually tap on your shoulder. Right, right. So putting on your fortune teller caps here, do we think that the future will lead to more regulation for influencers? I think so. I think it's a smart idea. It also gives guardrails and rules to how we want those influencers to approach their content. Obviously, the influencer themselves has a style and a voice and a tone that matches their following. So you can't really steal that from them. But how they use the product or how they are promoting a specific event or service should have, in my opinion, more guardrails than it does currently. And I think just based off of stories like this, some brands will have their eyebrows raised and say, okay, let's make sure that we will never be in this situation. So what should we do? Which will then in course become more rules and more guidelines. Excellent. All right, friends, let's get out of the gossip magazines. No, I'm just kidding. Let's get away from the Kardashians and switch over to Twitter who are coming through with some strange but fun updates. Kane, break it down for us. And is this another Elon story? (laughs) Strange but fun is a is a great way to put these. I'll walk through this first one. Twitter has recently moved to the next stage of testing for what they're calling a status indicator. As we know, 240 characters is quite limiting, and Twitter's platform has been this way since the very beginning, although increasing the number of characters last year. So Twitter is developing a new range of tweet status indicators, which will eventually provide a much more simple way to add another element to your tweeted message, which could help better communicate meaning or intent. So what this means is they're providing a list of possible status alerts. So imagine kind of a sticker tag to your tweet. This can be a mix of pre-populated trending sayings or popular activities so that users won't be able to create these statuses their own. They have to choose from the presets. But what they're testing out is this idea that they can add additional searchable tags to a tweet to increase their engagement and allow users to find more categorized content. Twitter's actually been testing this out for a little bit of time. I think it started back in July when someone leaked a screenshot of the update being pushed to them. But it's quite interesting. So here's an example. You go on Twitter, you tweet, let's just say it's 200 characters, but it doesn't really capture the entirety of what you're trying to say. So within this, you have the ability to tap on, let's say, 20 different tags to help identify what you're talking about. 
one idea here is by tapping on the tag or the status picture of the day, that could become another engagement and discovery element to find other people's pictures of the day. Or one that says hot take, you could actually go and find more tweets to interact with and add your own opinion to. So I think for us as users, it kind of makes this barrier of entry a bit easier. And especially as users are coming in, it gives them something to play with and engage with that isn't necessarily like a monologue or, or an opinion piece around what they're thinking, but they can just kind of add a tag or add this element to their tweet. So there's really no official release plan for this. I think they said that it'll be likely coming, quote unquote, very soon, which is not the most prescriptive, but we'll run with it. But in any way, I think that's a really interesting update that they're making this feature come available and also just lowering the barrier of entry for people who want to engage and also increase their engagement. Quick follow-up before you get into the second one, Kane. For the status indicator, this is something that the user would choose, correct? Not something that Twitter would choose for you. Exactly. It's a pre-approved set of Twitter-created tags that the user would be able to go in and choose one if it's relevant to their tweet that they're writing. So the next one here is... Twitter is testing a new view count display to better highlight how far and wide your content is reaching. So Twitter has publicly launched this test of what they're calling views, the view counter on some tweets, which displays the total number of times that each tweet has been seen within the app. The counter is actually indicated by this small little icon that looks like an eyeball on the bottom right of a of your main tweet stream. And it essentially is the impressions or reach publicly facing data point beyond. It's essentially an impressions data point that is sitting right next to this the original retweet and likes data. So why are they putting this general info on display or really confronting people with that figure? I mean, at a guess, I think I would assume that it's part of Twitter's ongoing effort to demonstrate that their tweets are going far and wide and it's more popular and influential than its general usage numbers. So as, as an example, if you know you put up a tweet that only gets 10 likes, but you see that 10,000 people actually saw it, it makes you feel like and it makes you realize that your tweets are actually becoming more influential and your the platform is more influential than those small, you know, 10 like numbers. As you may have heard in my previous podcast here, I think data is king. I love data and I'm all about data. But what's interesting, in my opinion, is that this update kind of goes against that whole push that social is having recently. You know, we looked at Instagram's update, a teasing update a couple of years ago around hiding the number of likes in a post and really publicly reducing the amount of pressure it's putting on people and hopefully reducing ego and pressure for those who are posting. We see Be Real ramping up, which is the antithesis of, you know, being popular, I guess you will. But now we have Twitter adding this number in here that seems to be all about showing how many people are seeing your tweet. It's just interesting to me how some platforms are taking this path of let's make it all about what you know in the data. And some platforms like Twitter are saying, let's publicly face these numbers that a lot of these other platforms are trying to reduce publicly. One last thought. Twitter has confirmed that this new view count display is currently only in testing with a small group of users, and there is no release date formally announced. So on the scale of strange but fun, this leans more towards the strange, I would imagine. Everything you said, Kane, was my first thought. You know, we have this constant dopamine hit with likes and things like that. And all the other social networks like Instagram have been testing and looking at ways to go away from that. So Daniel, I'm curious, is this data good for the user? Do we want to know how many people have seen our tweet? What if 
a million people see my tweet, but only two people like it. Is that going to make me feel good? What What do you think? I don't think so. I think this really feels like a direct response to Elon's accusations and the data that they provided a while back. I also am envisioning a lot of people mentioning how they've been shadow banned or something on Twitter and the algorithm's not serving my tweet to the however millions of followers that I have. I think this is an interim solution to substantiating the the reach and uh, whatever of Twitter. But I'm not sure that this is necessarily a long-term play just based on exactly what Kane was saying, the, the counter trends that we're seeing with other social platforms. There it is. I knew Elon would sneak his way into this podcast eventually. All right, let's keep talking about podcasts. Daniel, tell us about Spotify and co-host revealing the undeniable power of podcast in two separate studies. Yes, let us talk meta, but not actually the company meta, just podcasts on a podcast. As Joey said, Spotify and co-host have released two studies. Spotify was pretty much based on their listenership data and co-host was an evaluation of 400 branded podcasts. You heard me right. Podcasts from brands. So I'll quickly walk through the Spotify findings and then go on to the co-host findings. Firstly, and possibly the most interesting, especially for younger brands that may be questioning the use of podcasts, because podcasts are seen as this millennial darling medium, but it is actually Gen Z or persons 13 to 17 who are discovering new podcasts at the fastest rate. So they may be saying, I'm behind on this game. Let me get involved and let me discover. Small podcasts are global. Even podcasts with as few as 30 listeners probably have listeners from five different countries. And it's a pretty linear relationship until obviously we run out of countries to reach. Comedy is the most popular genre globally, but certain regions have different favorites. Latin America likes fiction podcasts. The US likes kids and family podcasts. And the Middle East likes technology podcasts. Podcast listeners, however, are not monoliths. They're not just their faves. They're listening to multiple genres and are willing to listen to full length of quite long pieces. So we tend to stick to 30 minutes on this podcast. But you know there exist podcasts up to two hours and people can listen for the length of that podcast. This one's a bit of a no-brainer. People who follow a podcast listen to four times more episodes than those who don't. So shameless plug, please like and subscribe our podcast. And then lastly, from Spotify, the biggest growth for podcasts occur within the first four months. So you launch a podcast today, and you're not getting the type of listenership that you want, continue to produce content, hold it out for four months. And by then you should see your biggest growth. All right, now let's turn over to co-host, which again, focused on branded podcasts. A few examples, again, shameless plug, our podcast, but Robinhood has one called Snacks. Trader Joe's has one called Inside, in parentheses. Smithsonian has one called Side Door. Though most of these podcasts are B2C, there are about 30% B2B product podcasts. So essentially, podcasts are for everyone. I had some interesting findings as well. I'll just name three here. Interview, discussion is the most popular format. Bit of me search here. We are a podcast like that. And also like those types of podcasts that tend to succeed, sticking to around 30 minutes of length and that duration tends to generate the highest ratings. The most popular branded podcasts are about business, technology, society, and culture. Necessarily should not stop a brand if they're not within those categories or verticals, but that's just to say those are the most popular ones. Nearly 70% of the podcasts that they evaluated, about 400, once started, brands continue to see the benefit and continue to make that podcast. About 70% of those continued on from start. And 
There's kind of an interesting bit of data here that 30% of the podcasts were identified about as seasonal. So it's not to say that brands didn't see value in continuing on. They may just have had a window of opportunity or a window that was most relevant to the brand. So there is value there. Once brands start, they don't stop for the most part. And then lastly, posting weekly or biweekly is what drives the most success. So this is a lot of information, but I think personally, it's interesting because podcasts are clearly a maturing medium. Think back to 10 plus years ago, maybe not even that many years ago with Serial, when people were asking, what is this? People are getting involved, listening to multiple podcasts, multiple genres of podcasts, and even younger folks are getting in there. And even brands are getting into the space. And the brands that are getting into the space are doing so, it seems, to create more meaning and affinity with their consumers and business partners. Podcasts as a whole are an enduring force that just continue to grow. For me, these stats should give brands confidence to, at a minimum, invest in podcast ads. But if they have a consistent story or a longer form story that could be told over a series of episodes to tell, podcasts may be a good medium for them to do so. And if you're in the business or technology spaces, double ups, like that makes the most sense. But if you have a good story to tell, you shouldn't feel like you shouldn't tell it. But there are a few rules to stick to. Again, very inspired by that co-host or those co-host learnings. Keep it casual, informal, possibly an interview discussion format, but something that people want to listen to, a rapport that people want to hear from. Stick to about 20 to 30 minutes and post on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Sounds simple, right, Joey? Oh, it's so simple. Overnight success. Well, it is interesting, right? We just talked about Twitter and instant gratification of seeing the likes and reads of your tweet. Podcasts are the exact opposite. Podcasts are a slow roll. You really have to invest the time. You will not become an overnight success unless you've got a huge name attached to your podcast. So with these two studies, I'm curious first about the Spotify study. Kane, what is exciting to you or what jumped out to you about uh, especially the Gen Z stat, but in particular, the study, what jumped out to you? Yeah, I, I was actually interested in the Gen Z stat too. It's interesting because I just personally, I didn't get into podcasts until maybe a couple of years ago. But prior to that, I know there were so many storytelling podcasts that were extremely popular. I mean, you mentioned Serial. Serial was the one that kicked this whole thing off. And since then, there's been a million popular and popular ones, but also ones that people are turning to as the main source of, of social and main source of media. I know, I know people that listen to sports podcasts, I know people that listen to gossip podcasts, I know people that listen to technology and, and whatever it is, it's just such an, um, a seamless way to integrate podcasts into your life, whether you're driving or walking or, or what have you. What was interesting to me though, is the difference in the intersect of the generations using podcasts and then also the growing popularity of podcasts as a medium. I mean, personally, I look at all these social platforms like TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat and all these platforms that are much more, I guess, tangible in a way and how active they are there. But it is really interesting to think about how a brand can tap into a podcast in a way to also tell stories or also push a product or explain something that people are going to and eager to get more information through. But oftentimes when we talk to marketers, podcasts, for whatever reason, become a secondary source of or tertiary source of a digital marketing tool. So it's interesting. It's it's obviously growing. I, I love hearing the data points behind the, the movement and how many people are actually active on podcasts. And also I'll be I'll be definitely using that to talk to my brands and, and my clients to say, hey, 
the numbers are here, the data is here. Let's look at ways we can activate further, even if it's an ad placement, even if it's just a pre-roll or a mid-episode jump in of an ad. Not necessarily a full-blown content cadence podcast approach, but just being able to tap into the, the popularity of a podcast for our, our generations that we're going after is super interesting, super important. When a brand who works with Gray mentions podcast, I spring into action and I am so excited and so ready to share everything that I know from doing these shows. And what's great, and what's great is there are so many use cases for a brand to use a podcast. I mean, everything from recruitment to telling their brand story to creating affinity with their audience, like you said, Daniel. All right, let's move on because otherwise we would talk about podcasts on this podcast all day. Kane, tell us about TikTok, who are looking to a partnership to help them develop a flailing live shopping feature. A flailing live shopping feature. So yes, TikTok is taking a new approach to promoting its live stream shopping tools in the US. So TikTok, if you're on it, you know it. It's one of those platforms that's being used to promote products and experience on the millions of scales. With this update, TikTok is continuing to push ahead with its live stream e-commerce initiative in the US after seeing huge success in their China market. So they recently pushed this live across the world. Some markets emphasize over others. The Europe one did not really go so well. The China one did extremely well. The US was kind of dipped their toe in. But now with their successes in China, they're trying to replicate what they did over there in the US which leads us to our update. So TikTok has reportedly partnered with an established live shopping network called Talk Shop Live to boost its awareness of its shopping broadcasts. So if you're not familiar, which I personally was not, so no shame, Talk Shop Live is what they are calling themselves an always live social shopping network with your favorite brands, artists, celebrities, and useful products. Essentially what the roll-up is, is Talk Shop Live invites celebrities and product owners and artists to come in and in a live setting digitally, talk about products that they want to promote and explain them and have people join their sessions to hear about them in hopes that they will turn them into a buyer. What TikTok is doing is forming a partnership with Talk Shop Live that will see its online shopping broadcasts cross-promoted on platforms. So while it'll be still live on Talk Shop Live, it will be seamlessly integrated into TikTok as well. This will help them reach a more engaged and active shoppers and also further promote its live stream efforts and live stream e-commerce offerings to this group. At the same time, TikTok is also partnering with a variety of influencer agencies to gain a larger pool and a more popular creator, a larger pool and more popular creators on board once they validate and formalize this partnership. And kick live its shopping tools. It's really interesting. You know, I've seen TikTok as I've been in the social world for quite a while, see its many iterations. And this one I think is a really smart step. Whether the partnership is the right partner, I just think the idea of ramping up its e-commerce platform and driving this live connections with, you know, A-list celebrities or artists and individuals on the platform is one that's a really smart step. There's already so many influencers and individuals promoting and highlighting products that they've either personally purchased or have purchased due to an influencer on it. So why not make it even easier to connect with them and also even easier to purchase that product through their platform? As a brand, I think the writing here is pretty clear. If you're able to get someone who is willing to talk about a product that you're offering, as we've seen many influencers do, this will just make it even easier to reach that large and even growing, engaging TikTok audience that 
every brand is trying to tap into. I think it's really interesting. I love it. I think any sort of direct-to-consumer purchase plan for software like this, similar to how Instagram did back in the day, where you can just do a tap through to a brand page to purchase something. Uh, I love it. I think it's really interesting for the platform. And it's going to be also, as we know, very interesting to see how all these other platforms that we talk about daily will react to this. So yeah, that's the update, Joey. Daniel, does this give you QVC vibes? It's like you're reading my mind today. As somebody who's mom in the wee hours of the night watched QVC while I was growing up and a huge fan myself of the new show, I Love That For You, which is essentially just a comedy about making a home shopping network-like show. It gives me very that energy. And I would be surprised if this didn't succeed just because like that sort of show and tell product to buy pipeline is very ingrained in the American psyche, or at least it was from like the 90s, 2000s, and so forth. But curious to see if they do the TikTok hands version of, oh, look at the the light glimmering on this piece of chain or whatever within this new environment. They're going to take hints from the old space, so to speak. Also, Instagram had a move into commerce, but this feels like it's taking it to the next level. So this is really exciting. We'll definitely keep an eye on this, especially throughout the holiday season. And if either of you buy anything from an influencer on TikTok, you have to let us know. Okay. And now it's time for our fifth and final thing. Daniel, tell us about Meta, who is trying to get into the weird AI trend sweeping social. Yes, exactly, Joey. Meta is getting into the weird Al space. Just kidding. They announced this interestingly on Twitter, not on a Meta platform. Uh, that they're working on an AI generator like the Dollies or Mid Journeys of the World. Only theirs is novel in that you can make short videos. It's essentially GIFs and it's aptly titled Make a Video with Hyphens. The quality of the first few videos that they've published leaves a bit to be desired. It feels very early internet. It feels uncanny valley. Kind of like what we're seeing from other AI generators, just a little bit worse and a little more eerie. It's early days. They've just announced that they're even working on this and are providing early access to researchers. But there doesn't seem to be a time in sight of when this is actually going to be launched to the public. But it is sort of a sign of what's to come in the computer or AI-generated art world. Obviously, we've seen this happen with images. Short-form video is next and perhaps in the vein of Netflix is a joke. Content could be the, the final frontier of this generation via AI. It's interesting to me for a few different reasons. First and foremost, because this is coming from Meta, a social, for lack of a better word, conglomerate at this point. It doesn't seem really to align to any or much of their existing products, aside from possibly introducing a paid subscription model through its own app or as a tag on to one of its existing apps. Possibly they could fund it via advertising. Just sort of unclear how this fits into the business model. Maybe it could be a way for content to be made for brands. One of the articles I read also mentions that this kind of a product seems to run contrary to the new way that they've made for creators to monetize on the platform. So essentially, you're making art without the artist. Nobody's getting paid. You're creating it yourself. So again, a little bit of a question mark about what they specifically are trying to accomplish other than this sort of flashy object that they've created. Additionally, there's a bunch of question marks around copyright, fair use, 
safety parameters that they're going to put in place. For example, what stops someone from making a slanderous or just plain offensive or graphic video of a famous person or something like that. It can definitely be used for sillier means. Don't know if you all have seen the John Oliver segment where he talks about the AI image generators where somebody was interested in creating an AI generated imager of him marrying a cabbage and then he made essentially a ceremony where he married a cabbage. There have also been AI generators in the past that have broken or that have really reached their limits because safety measures were not put into place. An article I read mentioned the short-lived Microsoft Text AI response tool called Tay that within 24 hours was already spewing misogynistic and racist vitriol. The internet and AI is made in the reflection of humanity or in the image of humanity. So left to its own and our own devices, bad things can happen. For brands, there doesn't appear to be an immediate impact necessarily. This could just be one more way for them to make content, to post on social and beyond, particularly if they're working from a library of their own footage and assets. So you get around the copyright parameters, you know you're working in a brand safe sandbox and so forth. Additionally, investing with your own money as a brand and time early on provides this early start to get ahead of what I am calling and probably has been called online the AI revolution. That said, I may be eating crow at some point. This feels like it is one more way to make content. I don't see that this ever replacing artists and creators. It's just, again, another medium for content to be made. Philosophers in the past, apologies to take it there. If you think of Walter Benjamin's The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproducibility, they said photography was the end of art and making art accessible to everyone is wrong. I don't think that that's the case. Those philosophers ate crow. Art was continued to be made. People are still painting with oil paints and writing books. So all of this to say just feels like another medium and another way to do so. Just interesting that it's coming from Facebook. Kane, is the weirdest part of this that it was launched on Twitter from Meta? I couldn't stop thinking about that. Who does that? So bizarre. Very strange. Well, there was a lot to unpack there. Kane, what do you think of all this weird direction that Meta is taking? They're just trying to figure themselves out still, I think. You know, they're, they're on the constant battle back to all other platforms that are seeing such high success. And they're just trying to differentiate themselves and find an avenue that no one's gone through. And this is obviously a great example of that. Amazing. Friends, this was such a great discussion that we went way over time, but that's okay because we do it for the people. And there was so much to unpack this week. All right, friends, if you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, or just send us a thing that you want us to discuss. And you can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank Daniel Avon and Kane Fair. As always, thank you to Danielle Hunt and Amanda Fuentes and the crew over at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes. And finally, thank you, listener. We will see you next week. And in the meantime, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.